The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Sequel Quest, episode 124. A sequel to Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic journey to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way. Sequel Quest is go for long, so let the adventure begin now. Greetings, vampires and valley girls. We welcome you to the 2020 Sequel Quest Halloween episode. Oh yes, let the fun begin. Let me introduce you to our blood-sucking group of podcasters tonight. First up, yeah, he heard about that ozone layer, and we totally got to get rid of that. It's Jeff. That's me. And he's got detention slips, and he's not afraid to use them. It's Jeremy. I guess. Finally, I am the chosen one, and I choose to podcast. I'm Adam. And returning to the show tonight is a Sequel Quest veteran. Yes, she has slayed many sequels in the past, including Jupiter Ascending, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and Ghostbusters Answer the Call. She brings more to the table than just a keen fashion sense. Hello, Kristen! So happy to be here. Welcome back. (laughs) It's a spooky time of year, and we're going to get into a spooky film indeed. And Jeremy, why don't you tell them what it's called? Well, it is the 1992 prequel, pre-reboot Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I guess it's a cult classic to some. Other people just want to disregard it in favor of the superior and more polished version. But just a a little bit of uh, Buffy behind-the-scenes history here as far as the production goes. So Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a concept that was created by Joss Whedon. Oh yes, you know that name all you brown coats and firefly fans people who enjoyed the first two avengers films and sort of liked justice league i guess he takes some credit for that (laughs) no no jeremy is not among them but he came up with this idea because he was thinking now how do you turn the concept of the traditional monster film where this helpless young girl is being chased by a monster and just gets killed in a dark alley he said what if she was the dangerous one what if the girl was the one who was actually stalking and killing the monster and thus this concept for Buffy the Vampire Slayer was born he wrote a script it got a lot of buzz around it and it actually got picked up by all people dolly parton (laughs) yeah yeah production company right and so it's interesting that she was involved but pretty soon after they started getting it into development they got a director named fran kazooie she'd only done one other film that i believe was called tokyo pop and uh and otherwise she had just a connection to the producers that were trying to put this film together she's like yeah i'll direct it that sounds stupid and like she literally said that (laughs) she's like and i always wanted to do a martial arts film so i could work some martial arts into the story of a cheerleader who fights vampires and so they started developing it 20th century fox gets into the mix and they say you know what we enjoy this concept we will pump a couple more million dollars into your budget and in the meantime 
they are saying, okay, who is going to be our Buffy, right? So they're looking at a couple different actresses, Alyssa Milano, Drew Barrymore, even Alicia Silverstone wanted to do it, but she was too young, apparently in 1992, and they didn't think that she fit. So she was out of the running. So they found Christy Swanson and uh, she had been a child actress. And I actually was just watching, seeing as this is the Halloween season, Mr. Boogity anybody on disney plus right now you can check out mr boogity and christy swanson is the daughter in that film and then from there they got the megastar they needed to bring notoriety yes the one the only the 90s james deed luke perry hit it on the head there jeremy luke perry big deal but because of his 90210 filming schedule they only had five weeks to make this movie does it show guys <laughs> wow. Would it have looked better with more time? I'm I'm not convinced of that. Yeah, well, if you look at the interviews of the behind the scenes, it was quite a tumultuous affair, all the production of this movie. Because, you know, they had some pretty big names, right? They had Luke Perry. They had Paul Rubens. Yes, Pee Wee Herman himself, fresh from a, a scandal in a theater, getting back into the spotlight. Uh, and they had Donald Sutherland. And apparently Donald Sutherland was, I guess, the focal point of most issues. <laughs> he came to the set with a little bit of a highfalutin nature about himself. His first altercation was with Paul Rubens, and Donald Sutherland was fighting him over who would get to have facial hair in the movie. He felt it should only be him. <laughs> wow, that's just selfish. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of facial hair to go around. And then... He started button heads with Joss Whedon because Donald Sutherland felt like there was a better way to say some of these lines. You got to tweak it a little bit. And we all know nowadays, especially Joss Whedon, very precious with his scripts. And it was driving him insane to the point that he decided just to walk off the set. And it didn't help the fact that the director said that she liked to improvise, kind of wanted to go with the flow. And if an actor had an idea, yeah, throw it in. And, you know, I, I don't give directions. So you just come up with your character motivation, your story, what you how you think it should be and then we'll just go for it from there so joss whedon's pulling out his hair at that time he had some and then he just decided to walk off set and that was it he was done with that production washed his hands of buffy the vampire slayer the movie but for you guys first time watch how did you encounter buffy the vampire slayer in the form that it came to theaters jeff I feel like I was aware of it because it, the, there was an ad for the, in like issues of, of comic books that I had. And it was always that same picture of Luke Perry peeking her out behind her holding a, a stake. And I, of course, I was familiar with Luke Perry. I never watched 90210, but, you know, I was, of course, aware of it. So that's that's about the extent of my knowledge. Ah, OK. How about for you, Kristen? Oh, I remember it very fondly. Ten years old I was, and we went to Albertsons and rented a VHS player because we didn't have our own. <laughs> and Buffy the Vampire Slayer was on VHS at Albertsons, 99 cents a day rental, and we got it for a slumber party and got to watch it with a room full of girls, and that was that was how I got introduced to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But what was the reaction? For me, it was right up my alley and I was super into it because before then at slumber parties you watched 
like girls just want to have fun and labyrinth and princess bride. And so to have a movie where the female protagonist actually gets violent was pretty amazing. <laughs> we were totally into that. It was either that or Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? You know, Marion getting a few punches in there. That was also very cathartic. <laughs> That's awesome. Jeremy, very curious for you. You a big Buffy head from the beginning? No, no, I didn't see this movie till recently and I avoided it like the plague due to I mean, I didn't watch Buffy all that much. But what I did watch, I the movie failed in comparison. So, yeah, I mean, you're a Joss Whedon fan, no, in terms of his general output. Yes and no. Some of his creations I'm interested in. Others, they were kind of lackluster. Well, for me, I will just say the marketing definitely worked. Like Jeff said, the advertisements that they had. I know there was another promo image that was just like a cheerleader from the neck down or waist down, and you could see the steak in one hand and the pom-pom in the other. And I remember then seeing the trailers on TV, and I was just like, I don't believe this. Luke Perry is in a movie, because this was his feature film debut and i was a big 90210 fan for like the first three seasons i was pretty involved in that and then from there i saw wait a minute peewee herman's in this movie not playing peewee herman and i got very excited by that i was just like i i want to see what that's all about i want to see if he can pull it off so i got excited to get to theaters and that's what i did i mean i got to theaters to check that out for myself and i remember there were certain moments that stuck out to me but overall i was kind of like huh that was an interesting movie but i'm probably not gonna watch it again nothing drew me into the universe but i always remembered a few key scenes and then like recently over the last year or so i picked up a vhs copy because i was like i gotta revisit this movie and it just so happens i also lucked into finding not one but two copies of the buffy the vampire slayer novelization because there was one that came out when the movie came out and uh, a version that's the same book but it was re-released with a different cover starburst blurb you know about the origin of the uh, the hot tv series and i only saw the show here and there but it wasn't uh something where i was super dedicated to buffy on any level but it was always one of those just like quirky films from my childhood i was just like yeah yeah buffy the vampire slayer sure wait 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 hang on can we go back to wait you were into 90210 for the first three seasons when you were eight years old? I got to reveal this? Okay, here's the deal, Jeff. <laughs> Short story. I something here. First, I got into it because I wanted girls to like me, and I wanted something to talk about, and I did not understand the friend zone. At eight years right. old? I've always been into girls, Jeff. Since preschool, what? I've had girlfriends. So, wait, wait. <laughs> Wait, were there eight-year-olds that were talking about 90210? Yes, it was an elementary oh, yeah. school thing for me, absolutely. What? what we, we weren't allowed to watch it, but wow. the fact that I couldn't watch it or like had to sneak watch it at friend's house <laughs> was a big deal. It's like the equivalent of having to sneak watch MTV or something because everybody was talking about it and you just you wouldn't know otherwise. Really? We were all talking about uh, Saved by the Bell. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
Oh, there was plenty of drama to go around. Yeah. All right, all right. Well, that was the thing. The problem is I took it too far, and I, you know, and obviously they had cute girls on the show, too, so I was enjoying them. And at one point, when it wasn't working out with the live girls, I bought the Shannon Doherty Brenda Barbie doll at a Toys R Us. And I went to the checkout with my mom, and she was looking at me with a side glance, like, why is my son buying dolls? And when I got up there, she's like, you better play with this. And all these people in the line are like, no, mom, she, she's going to play with it. It's for a birthday. Uh... <laughs> it did not cover well on that one. But I bought, like, the folders. They had now two and oh folders that were filled with gum. Wow. The trading cards. I have a stack on my desk here. Yes. Nano 210 fan, sorry. All right. <laughs> the secrets we keep from our friends all these years. <laughs> We'll get back to the movie in a second, but years later, there is a TV series by the same name, much more popular. So very curious for you guys, your recollections or your watch history with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Jeremy? I've seen them off and on. It's not something I've binged or got too into it. It's kind of been other people have been watching it, and so I've hung out and watched it as well. Okay. Jeff? Yeah, it was, uh, I kind of came at it in a roundabout way, I guess, is that I was never a big Joss Whedon guy, and then I ended up watching Firefly at some point, and I was like, all right, and I'm not a huge Firefly guy, but I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll check out some Buffy, and so I, I watched a couple of Buffy episodes, and yeah, it, it was okay, I have more respect for Joss Whedon now, so I appreciate his dialogue and all. But, yeah, it just, it doesn't quite click with me, I guess. Kristen! Uh, I was in love from the get-go. <laughs> but I do remember, um, I was trying to Google some of the early promo art. What was it, 97, I think? Uh -huh. It was like five years after the movie, give or take. When I saw that they were redoing Buffy the Vampire Slayer as a TV show, I had that moment of divided loyalties because I had been too young to know there was any drama surrounding the movie production. I didn't know that Joss Whedon had written the script and been horribly disappointed by the movie as a final product. I hadn't known that this was like his attempt to fix it and to bring the character he wanted to life. And so I felt almost like fiercely protected of this nostalgic childhood movie you know i've been like what are they gonna do to it how are they gonna ruin this great masterpiece that the original movie was <laughs> like what are they gonna do to my childhood love so i was a little bit skeptical but after watching the first couple of episodes and seeing how much darker and way more gritty it was i was like oh no this is gonna be good so total fan right from the beginning uh that's awesome yeah like, like i said like i was in and out with buffy i definitely remember all the faith episodes when i would see a promo that said faith was going to be on i'm like i'm tuning in for eliza dushku but i i always did get a kick out of it i thought it was a very fun show and and i like the interpretation of it but again like i didn't it wasn't appointment television for me so it was kind of like all right well you know if nothing else is piquing my interest tonight i'll just switch over to buffy and i know it'll be entertaining I remember when it finally went from the WB to UPN for like the final seasons. And I, so I always kind of like kept up on it. I was like, oh, Angel has his own series now. So stuff like that would, would always catch my eye. But I, I do find it to just be such a clever and fun show that I think they, yeah, they managed to really keep the excitement throughout the series. Like I, I've gone back, it's on Hulu, you know, so I've, I've watched it and I'm just like, wow, this is really just quality television 
confusion, you know, for that that era and that age range. And I think that the fact that so many people still go back and binge it over and over again and enjoy it uh, speaks a lot to just the quality of the production. But yeah, you wouldn't know from watching this movie that there was, I guess, you know, the potential for that because so much was overshrouded, you know, from if you want to call it Joss Whedon's genius or his what his vision was was changed. And so um, I wanted to mention a few things in the novelization seems to be based on an earlier script that was much closer to Joss Whedon's vision. Okay, so there, there are quite a few things that are different about it. The, the one thing I feel is lacking in the film is, you know, Merrick is there as Buffy's watcher, and he is there to guide her and teach her about her destiny and all those things but you don't really understand the friendship that they have there's like one small moment but otherwise it's just kind of like oh he's there to be her trainer in the book there is much more time that they spend together and there's a lot more humor involved. For example, this is one, one passage you all read says here, It had been entirely Buffy's idea to go to a church one afternoon and find a priest. Excuse me, she said, approaching hesitantly as the priest turned with a beneficent smile. Yes, my child, is something troubling you? Well, sort of. Buffy bit her lip and the priest nodded encouragingly. Well, maybe I could help. Yeah, um, could you bless these? Buffy held up a six-pack of Perrier. <laughs> Not in the movie! Deleted scene? Possibly. But then later on, uh, she takes Merrick shopping, and he says, Why are we wasting time with this anyway? Because you clash, Merrick. You clash with everything. I mean, you might as well go around with the sign, Slayers trained here. Honestly, you look like something out of Pasadena. My clothes have always yeah. been perfectly serviceable. Well, you're on my turf now. You're just gonna have to trust me. Merrick came out of the booth in multicolored parachute pants and equally loud t-shirt. Buffy looked at him. He looked down at himself. I want to die, Merrick said. Okay, Buffy said, but for once in total agreement, the important thing is not to panic. <laughs> so, these moments, character building. Definitely what was kind of marked as like being an overall lack in that first movie and that the character of Giles was brought in in the series to correct and expand on and add a way more like paternal relationship, emotional connection, and depth to the characters. I know that it's hard to develop characters over a 90-minute time period, but I think they definitely didn't quite get that with Merrick and Buffy in the movie. Well, I wonder if that was, because I, I mean, I felt like, because for me, Donald Sutherland was one of my favorite parts of the movie, but I definitely agree where I, I don't think that he, the, the dialogue that he had was good, but it also wasn't because because if you ask me, that's what I like about Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon can pack a lot. He is a very efficient dialogue writer and he can usually pack a lot of substance into his dialogue. So I can definitely see if Donald Sutherland was like, nah, I want to say something different. It might have been quirky and it might have been Donald Sutherland E, but it probably wasn't character development E. Like, maybe Joss Whedon wanted it to be. Yep, and just kind of created a character that didn't do much of anything particularly well. One of the big shortcomings of the movie was that the bad guy action scenes were so atrocious. I rewatched the movie <laughs> again today in, in preparation, and I wasn't convinced that this was a bad guy I would lose to waking <laughs> up from a nap. At the same time, 
when, you know, Merrick has his final confrontation and he's going to, you know, tragically meet his bitter end, it wasn't very convincing. Well, it's interesting you bring that up, Kristen, because in the novelization, Lothos, which is Rutger Hauer's character, you know, the big bad, he is much more menacing. He kills a lot more people himself, and he's just kind of always around, like, doing evil things. He rises from a pool of blood, talks about bathing in it to absorb, you know, the life energies and all this stuff. So he seems so much more intense, but that scene you referenced when Merrick dies in the book it is way darker and way more intense here okay so this is what he says i have her face lotho said and after i make you mine you will give me her name not in this life exactly everything will come to me in time merrick's voice dropped to a near whisper tight with intensity get thee behind me i told you lotho said smiling i am not the evil one then I'll deal with him. Merrick pulled the gun back and pointed it at himself. The last thing he saw was the startled look on Lothos's face as the shot rang out. Whoa. Oh, that is way better. Way better. It's intense. He goes out like a boss. Yeah, it's pretty great. Oh, man. Donald Sutherland, I bet he improved the way from that. He's like, oh, no, I'm pretty sure my character would not do that. How about I just really embarrassingly raise a stake? And just die horribly. Yeah, well, actually, what happened was that the director said she purposely kept changing all the violent scenes, even though the studio and Joss Whedon were like, no, it needs to be more intense. It needs to be more adventurous. It's a horror movie in part with humorous tones. And she's like, no, it's a comedy. And she was so blatant, like in this interview that I saw where she's just like, no, I just didn't think it was good for kids that were going to see this. So I just wanted to make it funnier. I was like, oh. <laughs> well, that explains it because... Um, you know, having not read up on her intent, I was trying to figure out where she was going and, and what influences her um, during the time period. And I can kind of see the evolution because it's like, okay, horror movies are kind of campy. Um, this one is a horror movie with funny elements. So it's just a campy horror movie. And you're like, no, you know, having seen what Joss Whedon had more in mind, having seen like Cabin in the Woods and his take on horror with elements of comedy, you know, having seen his action movies with elements of comedy, he doesn't say that you have to blend both until the, this like one weird blob of mis mismatched tones. It's like you use humor to inject more humanity into the characters and the scenes and to break the tension and to, you know, string people along and make them enjoy it more. And she just missed that tone entirely and just went straight for goofy. Yeah. Now the one thing I will say that does work, if you're going to go for goofiness, I mean, Paul Rubens is hilarious in this oh. movie. He is probably the best part of this film. Would you guys agree? I mean, Jeff, you loved your Donald Sutherland, but I mean, for right. pure entertainment gonna, value. Well, see, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say the exact opposite. <laughs> I was going to say he ruined the movie because he was so over the top and so ridiculous. And so, so it was kind of like, it depends on what you're going for. If you're going for a silly, goofy, like wacko, like whatever, like, yeah, I was never scared of him. I was never, like, he was just, he was kind of dumb and over the top. But if you're going for a dumb and over the top movie, then yeah, sure. I will say he was essentially written 
that way, at least oh, in the I'm novelization, sure. but he then they let him, yeah, ham it up even more. I mean, with the extended death scene, I mean, that's oh, yeah. pretty that was, funny. That was funny. Or kill him a lot. You know, like, there, there's some good oh, lines. I hated that line. Really? <laughs> oh, that was so bad. The, the line I hated was Luke Perry as Pike saying, are you talking to I? Are you addressing oh, I? That's terrible. I gotta say, Luke Perry, oh, and granted, I never watched 90210, so I'm assuming there was something good about him in 90210, but everything <laughs> else I've seen him in, I'm like, of all the 90210 people, why do we get him? Like, oh, it's just, it's painful. Yeah, but you're not pointing out David Arquette? Oh, our second David Arquette film in a row. <laughs> he's back, well, everybody. Well, he's kind of like... He's like an acquired taste, I feel, where you're just kind of like, oh, you can overuse him or, you know, I don't think you can underuse him. Yeah, in in the novelization, they're described as much more punk rock. Like David Arquette's character, Benny, is like bald, he's wearing suspenders, they got Doc Martens on, like, it's, it's a much different style than just kind of the slacker look that they have in the movie. Now, Jeff, what did you think of Rutger Hauer overall as as a villain? I mean, we talked about uh, that maybe he wasn't effectively showed, but did you like his performance, hamming it up? It's tough because it's like, again, I'm coming in watching it, having being more familiar with the show and then going back and watching this. So it's like to completely shift the, the narrative and to be like, no, no, this is a you know, a, a different style, a different feel or whatever, is just such a challenge because I want to compare him to, like, the Master and and even, like, Angel and Spike were, like, bad guys. And, well, Angel was, eh, wasn't really a bad guy, but Spike certainly was. And then there's Rutger Hauer, and it's like, he was kind of classic Rutger Hauer, I guess, where it's he's like a spoof of himself. <laughs> so, I don't know. It was just like... For me, I kind of felt like having a, a dramatic actor intentionally act bad, kind of. It's almost like, you know what, I, I compare it to Flash Gordon. Because what I love about Max Van Sydow in Flash Gordon is because he is going 100%. He does not think that this is cheap. Like, he is giving it his all, and it's spectacular. That wasn't Rutger Hauer. I, I don't know that he was like, I'm fully committing to this level. Like, give me the motivation of this. No, I think he was... Having fun, having fun. I don't know. It didn't quite work as well for me. Now, I will say his death scene in the book is much cooler because they have, like, you know, the big fight in the gym. Everybody's fighting. But really, the students end up banding together kind of with Pike leading the charge and killing all the vampires themselves while Buffy is fighting Lothos and he throws her into this hallway and she opens up a locker that she gets you know, thrown into a dents and a pencil case falls out and so she has sharpened pencils and at one point you know Lothos is like he's hovering towards her he's making all these terrible you know I'm gonna tear the flesh from your bones and all this stuff he's coming after her and then she just does this like palm smash into his chest and then you just see a little pencil sticking out he gets killed by a pencil but but it just seems like a much more ominous thing than again like just like oh we're kind of fighting over a steak okay got you you know like they just kind of do that thing over and over again and i think what also we lose uh in the movie which they you know improved upon in the series was when vampires die they just have a stake in them and then they fall down you know whereas in uh the tv series you know they disintegrate like it's really cool looking although i heard that costs like five thousand dollars 
per vampire they had to kill each episode to render that in 1997. That's what IMDb tells me anyway. But uh, if you guys had to like pick out one key scene from this movie that you feel really works, what would you point to? Hmm. In terms of ones that always like stuck out in my mind or that I remembered, um, I remember when um benny comes back to see pike for the first time after he's transformed and he's like hovering in the air outside the window and he's like let me in and he's like you're floating go home (laughs) i thought that was pretty funny because a he was like aware enough to realize this is probably a bad idea and he didn't let him in um but it was probably the point where um arquette was like most on tone for the movie. Cause you're like, okay, now he has a reason to be obnoxious. He's one of the legions of the undead. Um, so I, I thought that was kind of an effective scene. Um, it's a little tricky sometimes to pick out the best because I almost feel like you have to take it as a whole or leave it as a whole in some respects, because um, I don't know. It's, it's all, either a hot mess that somehow works together or it's just a mess. <laughs> Jeff, were you impressed by any one moment? Well, it's funny that I like the intro, the, the what's his name, Merrick's uh-huh. intro thing that kind of works, but it kind of doesn't. You're saying when he like first approaches playing... her in the gym, you mean? Yeah, that whole thing is it, it's like she's overdoing the valley girl thing for my tastes and he's underdoing the like cool like knowledgeable guy. So there's this huge gap between them intentionally to an extent, but it's a little it's a little much. For me the moment though is that so he throws the knife and she catches it, which is kind of cool. But it's her face afterwards. You threw a knife at my face. Like, I love that. That one worked for me. Just like that. That actually made me laugh. You know, and thinking of that, I also was a sucker for a training montage. That's pretty much a good rule. Like, I'm a sucker for a training montage. That that (laughs) one was probably top 10. Okay, but I wanted to bring something up about that. I'm glad you guys mentioned it. Jeremy, maybe you could back me up on this. But that montage has to have been an inspiration for the director of the 2003 Daredevil film, because it is almost identical to Elektra's training montage. It's in this, like, big ballroom thing with all these pillars, and there are curtains everywhere. The only thing missing, you know, is the Evanescence song. But I'm just like, when I was watching this, I was like, that's from Daredevil! I was like, no, Daredevil ripped off Buffy! So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, nobody else probably drew that uh, <laughs> conclusion, but that was immediately what sprang to mind for me maybe i'm the one who's watched the daredevil director's cut more than anybody else yeah more than anyone else i would guarantee (laughs) yeah yeah like once yeah so uh for me i think yeah the the scenes that i enjoy like i said i mean because paul rubens just stands out to me just as like you know a stellar performer in this production Um, i really do like the battle in the park like with pike's van you know and how they set up like the guitar flying out through the windshield and then buffy comes in eventually and gets you know the the broken headstock piece and then stabs him like all that is 
that was like the one fight scene I felt was well choreographed. Because otherwise, everything with like wire work and everything else in the film is really messy and bad. But I thought that one, if I saw that and I was like, okay, can you duplicate that tone throughout the rest of the film? I would have been like, okay, this kind of gets it. There's a little bit of humor. And so it, it works just right. You know, and I, I felt like that's where it congealed in the middle of the film. And if only they could have uh, taken that and, and spread it around a little bit more. One thing I thought it was worth mentioning too, though, as, as I'm saying, it reminds me of other films, is so the basketball scenes, uh, those were interesting, according to the director, yeah. because she's like, I don't understand basketball. And I was really stressed out that day trying to shoot the game of basketball. And she's like, and it didn't help that there was this really annoying actor named Ben Affleck, speaking of Daredevil. <laughs> And she said he kept asking her, what's my motivation? He has one line in the movie. And, and he kept asking her about his motivation. And she was just like, mental note, never hire that guy if he comes up in casting for another movie. <laughs> and wouldn't you know it, she never directed another movie another outside movie. of Orgasmo, starring Trey Parker. Oh, wow. South Park fame, yeah. So, and I think Ben Affleck was going out for Orgasmo. So either way, it's one of those things that was just like, that's pretty hilarious uh, that he was super annoying and uh, that paid off for him in the long run but also there is a, a, an academy award winner in the mix of the cast who did you guys see oh yeah playing the frenemy i always get her and jennifer garner mixed up even though they don't look alike really but they're but they're just of that similar age and era of like the you know the young actresses i'm sure they went out for the same roles over and over again uh, all throughout their careers she's definitely the one of the friends that stands out right where was this in terms of next karate kid because maybe she should have been the one playing Buffy if she was going to go on to it a would make more sense yeah because I think that was yeah that was probably just like a two years later because I think that was like 94 95 so yeah maybe they saw this and they're just like yeah well we'll get her in there she could throw some kicks Oh, but the thing I was going to mention uh, about the basketball scene, uh, it very much reminds me... Of Teen Wolf, doesn't it? Yes, there you Air go. Bud. Yeah, Airbud. <laughs> no, definitely Teen Wolf, though, with the yellow uniforms. You've got a supernatural creature playing basketball. I mean, it's all there. So that that's, again, and I'm sure it was absolutely no influence, you know. I mean, Joss Whedon, I'm sure, saw Teen Wolf, but I don't know. I, I just, I thought that was an interesting... Or maybe there's just certain elements of film in teen movies that are universal. The last thing I wanted to mention, though, is as far as Whedon's original vision. So this is not in the novelization either, but he says that the original ending was that Buffy was going to burn down the high school gym with all the vampires inside. And so it was like the super destructive ending. And they didn't go with that. In the book, it's over. The kids kill all the vampires in the gym themselves. Buffy kills Lothos. And then from there, it just cuts to you know a few weeks later and all her friends are talking at a pool party saying yeah she got so weird she didn't even go to graduation and then like that was it they just never saw her again and then the final scene in the movie is Buffy and Pike making out but in the book it's the two of them approaching this dark castle and they have this giant steel door knocker and then it says like you know the door opens and you don't know what happens because it just ends right there so it was like they continue 
continue on going into their Slayer activities. But with the TV series, if you watch the pilot, Joss Whedon wrote into that at the very beginning. There's a whole discussion about how Buffy burnt down the high school gym at her last high school, and she is a troubled student. It's not actually a sequel to the movie, the TV series. It's a sequel to Joss Whedon's original concept. But now the question becomes... If there had been a sequel to the movie, what form could that have taken? How do you salvage kind of a mess of a film that only made double its production budget and was considered quite a failure by 20th Century Fox, who financed most of it, and Dolly Parton, we can only assume. Um, <laughs> so what do you guys think we could do to take Buffy to the next level? Kristen, why don't you take it away? All right. Well... I had to switch mental gears because it's, you know, very emphatically not in the Joss Whedon established canon Buffyverse, which went on through graphic novels that I didn't follow up on after the series ended um, and has a huge cult following. And so getting all of that lore out of my head and trying to get back to the Valley Girl roots, I was like, okay, let's think 90s Valley Girl LA. So we left Buffy and Pike riding off into the sunset on the back of Pike's motorcycle. Buffy has just saved all of her classmates from a gruesome death at the senior dance. She managed to kill the bad guy, although how much of a challenge that actually was really remains debatable. She's a senior in high school, primed to finish the rest of the semester before heading off to whatever comes next. She's gone from being popular and a vapid cheerleader with a boyfriend and equally vapid friends to an outed slayer responsible for publicly fighting and killing vampires in front of the entire student body. At this point, she and her friends have grown apart. Her classmates have been attacked and probably have PTSD. Her watcher has been killed and her parents are still in a blissful state of negligent ignorance. But since this is still a 90s camp horror movie... We're not going to take ourselves too seriously. So we just rejoined Buffy, having skirted over all of that uncomfortable real talk feelings. We'll leave that to Joss Whedon. And the year is still 1993. Buffy's going away to her first semester at UCLA because her parents insisted and they're going to pay for it. She will be living in a, a sorority house since she'd applied before everything Slayer-related happened and her mom had pledged in her own woe-begotten and very mourned college years. So she will be living in a sorority house and isn't really sure how that's going to work now that she has so many duties to perform at night. But she has decided on a fashion major because becoming a buyer still seems like an amazing career move. Buffy is determined that the possibility of bloodstains won't deter her from making sure every outfit slays. Pike is working on campus as a mechanic, maintaining the school's fleet vans and buses. He doesn't mind the work, but he really just wanted to be on hand in case anything gets too crazy. And as soon as the new semester begins, it does. Buffy has just moved into her new sorority house when some of her pledge sisters begin to disappear. When questioning her housemates, they warn her not to ask too many questions. It's not cute to butt into other people's business. Every year, at the start of a new term, one or two girls go missing because they can't handle the pressure of school and the pledge week. It's totally normal. But after her new roommate, Shauna, who is absolutely obsessed with the sorority and determined to pledge, 
goes missing on the way home from a frat party, Buffy begins to suspect that the house's pink frills and lacy curtains hides a much more sinister truth. Pike doesn't like Buffy hanging out with the sorority girls. They're a huge reminder of her frivolous roots and past materialistic immaturity, but Buffy isn't quite ready to ditch it. Her mom pledged here and she has nowhere else to go. Besides, her slayer sense is tingling. There's a mystery here, and she's just the blonde to solve it. As Pledge Week approaches, Buffy begins to have increasingly strange and vivid nightmares. She dreams she's trapped in a cold stone box in the dark. Once she dreams she's weak and helpless, as roots hold her in place, slowly feeding off her energy and life force. She wakes from these dreams tireder and more weaker than normal. It seems like her energy and vitality is slowly being drained away. And she's not the only sister affected. All of the first-year pledges seem like they're wilting. Some have stopped attending classes. Others are barely eating. When Buffy asks them what's wrong, they all express that their dreams have become nightmarish and it's really taking its toll. Oddly enough, the senior sisters are as vibrant and lively as ever. As the pledges wilt, they seem to bloom with health and extra beauty. And what do their cryptic remarks about looking forward to Pledge Week have to do with anything? Buffy suspects that the upcoming pledge traditions will be more than hazing and pranking. Something far more serious than public humiliation seems to be on the menu, and Buffy intends to find out what it is and put a stop to it. The night of the pledge, Buffy and the rest of the new recruits are kidnapped from their bedrooms at 2 a.m. by giggling girls who throw pillowcases over their heads and shove them in the back of the van. This is expected. What's surprising is being driven around for an hour only to find themselves in the basement of their own sorority house. The first thing to greet their eyes when the pillowcases are removed is a giant pool of blood in the center of the basement floor. A massive tree grows from the center. Its branches and trunks have been morphed and shaped into the sorority house itself. They've been living in a tree this whole time, a tree alive, with a diabolical vampiric intent, sustained on human blood and nightmare energy. The dreams have been caused by this nearly sentient creature, which in turn feeds off their scared reactions. It's been leeching off of them. The older girls are part of the sorority's great legacy. In return for providing the tree with fresh victims, they receive youth, vitality, and beauty. They'll go out to the world with all the advantages that brings and will raise their daughters to continue the vile tradition. Unfortunately for them, Buffy didn't come to play nice. The trouble is, how does a slayer stake a vampire tree? Wood seems ridiculously ineffective. And where does it keep its heart? Luckily, it's Pike to the rescue. He crashes through the basement door, riding his hog down the wooden stairs to crash into a stand of candles, knocking them over in spectacular fashion. While Buffy works to free herself and the other girls from their bindings, Pike is faced with the difficulty of warding off the sorority sisters intent on throwing him into the pool of blood without hitting girls. Luckily, it's Buffy to the rescue. Seeing Pike's motorcycle, she forms a plan. She rips the pillowcase into a makeshift wick, spreads it into the bike's gas tank, starts it up, and rides full tilt towards the heart of the massive tree. After fumbling with her lighter while trying to steer, Buffy manages to light the wick. If she can time this right, she'll have a nice little Molotov cocktail from Slayer with Love. 
At the last possible moment, she leaps from the bike, sending it with perfect aim into the tree's base. She has just enough time to push herself and Pike into an alcove before the blast shatters the tree trunk. As the tree shrieks and dies, the senior sorority girls shriek as well. They're shriveling up and crumbling away as the tree draws back all the energy it gave them with interest, trying desperately to save itself. Buffy and Pike are herding a group of confused and shell-shocked pledges up the stairs, dodging falling ceiling beams and trying to keep their feet while the entire structure shudders. With a last daring leap, all of them reach the outside world safely as the entire house crumbles in on itself, shriveling up until nothing but a solid rock-like pod remains. Buffy and Pike have once again defeated the vampiric forces plaguing L.A., as Buffy leads the pledges to come to terms with what they've gone through, Pike mourns the loss of his bike while stealing one of the university's vans. As they drive off into the sunset, neither one notices the house pod slowly sending out one single tendril, a root that takes place firmly in the L.A. soil. Oh, Buffy, the college years. <laughs> That's pretty great. Or tree of blood, either one. <laughs> Buffy tree of blood. <laughs> All right, Jeff, what seed are you planting? All right, so I, understanding the premise, but also my penchant for unoriginality, whatever I have a penchant <laughs> for, I can't ignore both of them. So I'm going to try and reboot. Yes, it is a sequel of the movie, but I'm going to try and build off of the... Anyway, let's just get into this. We start with Alan, who is a high school student. We kind of follow him as the movie begins, and he is one of those guys that just goes to class and goes home. Is not involved in sports, doesn't do any activities, doesn't really have any friends. He's just kind of, you know, going through the motions. But we, at least, and he as well, notice that there are strange occurrences or actions by the popular kids. And the popular kids group seems to be growing larger and larger, suspiciously so. Plus, they're getting news of, again, some disappearances. More kids than should uh, have been disappearing. And some of them, it's been like, oh, you know, so-and-so called in sick, or so-and-so again, or, you know, and so-and-so, uh, they probably transferred or something like that. But it's, it's becoming suspicious. So, and this is the part where I'm not exactly sure. It probably should be played by Christy Swanson. I kind of want it to be Sarah Michelle Gellar. But let's say it's Christy Swanson approaches Alan and says in a very similar way that he is called to be a slayer and defeat demons. As viewers of this are very confused, obviously, but we find out that because... On the show, Willow activated Slayers beyond the one Slayer that actually opened the door to both male and female Slayers. So we go through a training montage where uh, Christy Swanson is now training Alan, who is not physically talented or is not whatever. So it's going to be a not a good training montage. Um <laughs> But that's where they then have to reach out to one of the other Slayers, and then we can bring in Sarah Michelle Geller, who also trains him. But then we find out that ultimately Alan is not going to be, you know, a kung fu whatever. Is that yes, he's a Slayer, but because of the new nature of Slayers in this day and age, he's not necessarily a fighter. He's more of a thinker or a whatever. So they got to find his own little thing, and I, I'm. Probably like technology would be his thing, that he's really good with computers. And of course, we can't understand how that could possibly help as a slayer, but there we are. 
So now that Christy is as his, uh, or Buffy, I guess, kind of confusing because they would both be named Buffy. Yeah. So maybe play with that. I don't know. <laughs> but nonetheless, whatever, because Buffy's probably not her given name. I'm assuming. I don't, I don't know that much. But anyway, so then they start investigating mostly, again, Sarah Michelle Gellar is not really as major of a part here as, as the two of them. The, the Watcher and the, the Slayer, so to speak, even though technically she's still a, a, a Slayer as well. Investigating what's going on here because she already kind of knows and finds out that the leader is the school principal, is the head vampire, but he's not quite a vampire. He's more powerful than a vampire. And even when they get together and like both of them, they're unable to defeat him. So then they figure out what they need to do is they need to call Buffy 2 back. And not only that, they need to recruit a team of Slayers. So Alan doesn't know anybody at school, so they have to kind of go and find some of the other people that are willing to join them. And they do kind of get a crew of misfits that are, each of them kind of have their own little gifts, but they're not Kung Fu, you know, fighters. So it kind of behoove, it, it ends up being Buffy 1 and Buffy 2 that are their fighters, but then they also have one person, again, Alan's good at the technical side. There's another person that's good at, I don't know, something. A text is always the easy one, but another one that's really friendly. Or I, I don't know what their powers <laughs> Kill are. Kill them with kindness. Kill them with kindness. But no, that's kind of the, the idea. It's like with, um, what's her name? Squirrel Girl. Where it's kind of this idea that it's not your, not things that you would think would actually be advantageous. So, of course, as they're battling through, then all of their powers do come into use. And we find out in the course of battle that the principal is actually an old one, uh, Arsgomer, and reveals that he's actually one of the original demons and he's actually a pure demon who isn't like a vampire that's like a hybrid like human slash demon he's actually a pure demon which is why he's so powerful but then that also reveals that there is a larger battle kind of going into some of the mythos about the um and hell's mouth and all of that is kind of teased but they defeat him but then they also know as an old one they can't fully defeat him all they can do is kind of disperse him and that kind of leads it to to understand that like Alan, this is your calling. Like you can no longer go back your old life now that Ars Gomer is been unleashed onto the world, we need you more than ever. Blah 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 blah. Leading us to future adventures of Alan and the Slayer Gang. Oh, Jeremy got excited. The idea of a Buffy multiverse. Oh yes. <laughs> All right, well, here we go. I decided to uh, do a, a direct sequel in the 90s. Once again, want to keep it exciting here in the same timeline, the same stories that we've just seen. So I give you Buffy the Vampire Slayer 2 Lost Blood. Taking place three months after the events of the first film, Buffy has graduated and is looking forward to a summer relaxing with Pike. But he admits to being let down that there's no more vampires to kill, as that was kind of their thing. And he's been training to act as her slaying partner. Buffy tells him she just wants a normal life with a normal boyfriend and hopes they never see another vampire again. But just then, she gets a telegram from her new watcher, Mr. Jones, telling her to meet him in Santa Car. 
Carla, California. Buffy says, at least it's by the beach and I can get a tan, as they hit the road. Meanwhile, in Santa Carla, a boy named Sam, played by Corey Haim, is getting the attention of an attractive goth girl named Tracy, played by Nicole Eggert, who gets turned on by the occult and hearing from the Frog Brothers at the local comic shop that Sam was involved in killing vampires a few years back, she sets her sights on dating the vampire hunter. Even though it was actually the Frog Brothers who did the hunting, but they're not as cute as Sam. Upon their arrival in Santa Carla, Buffy and Pike meet Mr. Jones, played nervously by Bobcat Goldthwait, and are taken aback that he's not as confident nor as reserved as Merrick was. Jones admits that he's new to this responsibility, and after Buffy killed Lothos, it kind of threw the whole vampire hunting business out of whack, since he had been the big bad for so many centuries. Jones reveals the reason they came to Santa Carla is that they have a new directive that involves working with someone who was in the process of being turned, but managed to kill a head vampire as well to stop the turn, Michael Emerson, played by Jason Patrick, who also happens to be Sam's older brother. Back at the Emerson home, through a series of rituals performed in between makeout sessions with Sam, Tracy accidentally resurrects dead vampire gang leader David, played by Kiefer Sutherland. The young couple begin their process of becoming vampires after being bitten. Buffy, Pike, and Mr. Johnson track down Michael, who is working as a mechanic, and there is an instant attraction between the former vampire and Buffy, which bugs Pike. Michael has a hard time accepting their story of slayers throughout time, and wishes to leave his vampire Eric passed behind him. But when they discover that Sam and his girlfriend have been turned and that his nemesis David has somehow returned from the grave, Michael agrees to join the fight. Sam is very neurotic about becoming a vampire, while Tracy is totally on board. She's so embarrassed that her father is a shirtless saxophone playing performer down at the beach and that any chance to change her life circumstance is welcome. David, meanwhile, is simply focused on revenge against Michael and in his resurrected form is in pervious to staking, which we find out when Sam tries to kill him in order to end the transformation process. As the story goes on, Buffy is a platonic friend to Michael, trying to help him heal his heart after his relationship from the first film, The Lost Boys, if you haven't caught on by now. Didn't work out. And as a result of his jealousy over the friendship between Buffy and Michael, Pike takes a stupid risk in hunting David along with the Frog Brothers in order to prove himself to Buffy, and they end up getting captured and turned themselves. So now it's Buffy and Michael versus David's new band of Lost Boys. Eventually there is a showdown and David is killed again with some intel from Mr. Jones, but it doesn't turn any of the group back to normal. Why? Because it turns out that the Sax Man was the real head vampire after all, which finds Tracy finally having respect for her dad, and she fights against our heroes as they try to kill her father. Sam has to kill Tracy, which she disturbingly tells him is so hot in their final moment. While Michael and Pike battle in a one-sided brawl for Buffy's affections, the Frog Brothers are too busy taking turns testing out the theories about what hurts vampires to actually join the fight. Finally, after Mr. Jones has his head ripped off while trying to help Buffy in an unprotected moment, the sax man is stabbed through the heart with the sharpened reed of his own saxophone, and everyone turns back to normal. All is forgiven as Buffy and Pike bid farewell to Santa Carla on the way to their next destination provided during a phone call with their new watcher. Yes, it's on to New Orleans to track down a vampire named Lestat as credits roll. <laughs> <laughs> 
Wow. Check them Speaking all of- <laughs> off the list. I know. Speaking of multiverse. Oh, that's where you got to take it, man. These days, that's what people want. <laughs> well, now, these days, you could probably do it, too, since I'm sure Disney owns all of them. So you just have to pitch it to the right people and you won't have to worry about proprietary Indeed. rights. Adam, where's your vote fall? So, you know, listing, we got we got Jeff's pitch for, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer Cobra Kai. <laughs> Maybe Dream Warriors, depending on which uh, franchise you enjoy the most. Yeah, then we have uh, Buffy with the Evil Tree and Sorority Girls. Do I like the Buffy multiverse and team training idea with this, this new generation of Slayers? Or do I want, like, kind of just the classic, where does Buffy go from here? Ah, it's hard. I mean, they're, they're both good ideas. I think I lean towards the tree idea just because it's so weird that I feel like there's a lot of comedy <laughs> that you could mine from that. I mean, because otherwise I'm just dealing with kids who are good at computers and being kind. And I, can, I just don't know, I don't know if I can work with that, Jeff. So Kristen gets my vote. Well, I'm glad because when you had mentioned that Whedon had a pool of blood, I was like, of course he did, because what else are you going to do in a 90s horror movie? If you don't have a pool of blood somewhere with, like, people with pins in their heads or bathtubs or literal pools of blood in the backyard with crocodiles in it, are you even making a horror movie in the 90s? I submit that you are not. All right. Well, Kristen, where's your vote fall? What I really enjoyed, and I was just kind of giggling over here with my mic on mute, is that the first thing you guys did was make male slayers. And I was like, welcome to the life of every female growing up ever. Because at the end of the day, what we all really want is just representation and a chance to kick butt in some form or other. And one of the geniuses of Buffy was that premise of the weak can be strong. Our flaws become our virtues. We're overturning expectations. And sometimes we're the scariest thing in the alley. And so I really enjoyed having you guys put into that position where you just want a slice of the the pie. So welcome to the Slayerville, Stop gentlemen. It. But I also really enjoyed um, crossovers. And it reminds me that I haven't seen Lost Boys since I was, I don't know, when would have been... When would my mom have let me? I actually, I don't think my mom, if I called her now, would let me watch it. So I probably was like 10 or 11 or 12 whenever it came out. So I, I need to watch that again. But I, I like the idea of bringing in some of the other classic 80s and 90s horror elements. I think on this one, I'd have to go with crossover. Yeah. I think, Adam, you get my you vote. You should have made it literal Cobra Kai, Jeff. Get William Zabkin there. <laughs> Which, by the way, I expected to like that series, but I didn't expect how much I was liking Cobra Kai. So this is just a little oh, side plug amazing. for my enjoyment of that series. Yeah. so good. In my own defense, just throw one out there. Because my thought, and I totally thought about exactly what you're saying, is the idea that, like, that's the point of Buffy, is that it's finally a, a, a girl protagonist. Which my compromise was the fact that now it's a girl training a boy. That that way, so she's still the in the superior the superior role but i definitely understand what you're talking about you know there's a real basis for the idea of 
needing to open the Slayer verse to more individuals. And if I'm not mistaken, it was like season seven or eight, whenever the last one was of the TV show, that's what they basically do is that all of the, they're calling them potentials, all of the potentials who could have become Slayers are activated as Slayers. And I think that the rest of the novels that continue, or the graphic novels that continued after the series ends follows what you do with a, an army of thousands upon thousands of active Slayers. And I think they all train them in a castle in Scotland or something like that. Well, Jeff, where's your vote going to fall on this, huh? So the the biggest factor is that I have never seen Lost Boys. So I have no affection for that. So tying it back into that doesn't really, like, draw me in. So, like, I'd be that person in the theater that's like, am I not getting some <laughs> references here? I feel like I'm being left out. But not only that, I also do like the idea of, like, it seems like a very natural, especially because the movie was so focused on the idea of her being a, a high schooler and a teenager and, and all of that. So it seems very natural to follow up with that being her in college. So I would go with Kristen. Whoop, whoop. Well, I can make this interesting, but I also really think that we should expound on the Buffy college years. That pitch works, so let's go that way, and it's three to one. Congratulations. I will uh, be writing this up and sending it to my agent, and uh, (laughs) you guys have first rights and first Very nice. Sequel Quest Studios (laughs) will put an option down for sure. Yeah, so I guess uh, when I'm I'm looking at the situation, the, the plotting was pretty right on you know where we would expect it to go the one storyline that i felt like i was curious to know like so you know pike doesn't like that she's hanging out with all you know more you know basically just girls that are into popularity whatever else is just too much of a reminder of the old days but what is he doing in the meantime because i just think he needs to have some comedic thread like is he trying to go to college with her is he you know working some like terrible job is he literally just like the boyfriend that kind of comes in and out? What was your thought with, with Pike in this movie? He's a really fascinating character, even if you just kind of analyze him as place within the original movie, because he is supportive of Buffy's powers. He, you know, wants to be helpful. He, you know, makes some quips about you know, are you going to, you know, beat me up if I ask you to dance? So he, like, acknowledges her strength, but he's still on board for it. So, I don't know, like, the dynamic between him and Buffy is very interesting anyway, so we don't want him to just get, like, relegated to good timing man, (laughs) right? So I kind of envisioned him as sticking with what he's been doing, because he still has a little bit of an aura of slacker to him, and maybe just not pushing himself as far as he could go. So I was thinking he would get a job on campus in their mechanics division, maintaining their fleet vans, their buses, because otherwise it's really hard for him to be there under convenient timing. And most of these horror movies are all about uncanny coincidences where people just happen to be in the right place at the right time. Um, But I definitely would see any character development and especially relationship development as a huge plus over the first one that just kind of relied on a lot of 
lazy writing sometimes. Okay. Yeah. So we got we got Pike is there. He's continuing on. He's he's in the area, so he could be available. And then the other question that I had was just so I'm understanding. So there are kind of the heads of the sorority. Are they actually like very old? Right. That like they've been the heads of the sorority for a long time. Is that correct? Are they've been stealing the youth, or is it just they've been feeding the tree? I was, I was trying to understand the relationship again because like are they good do they go back to buffy's mom's days in the sorority i kind of like that suggestion better because the truth is as i was thinking through this i was having the hardest time not turning into the skulls if you guys remember joshua jackson more wb yeah y'all remember that because i was like i'm pretty sure this is only sororities instead of fraternities (laughs) (laughs) with vampires and trees so i think it would make way more sense if it were the original people who had been there but then you have to walk it back and develop more like how did her mom not know about it did she never come across well, it and, and also if if they're eternally youthful though it's like how long have they been in this sorority how long have they been attending this college like that was the one thing i was trying to sort out in my head the way i had it written was that it's kind of like you get the benefits for a couple of years and then you go out into the world and you send your daughters to perpetuate ah, okay. it so it's because like my thought thing. was it would be an interesting plot twist if, you know, Buffy's mom, who was not much of a character in, you know, the original film, if she had, like, some little part to play in either tipping Buffy off or because, like, maybe she didn't agree with it back in the day and she, like, you know, left the sorority or maybe she was, like, influenced to, to get Buffy into the sorority for that purpose. You know, like, just, like, something that ties it to makes it a little bit more personal to Buffy being there. Or what if she was in on it and somehow benefited yeah. uh, from that empire element herself and she thinks she's going to send Buffy to perpetuate it, not realizing that maybe that influenced why Buffy's the chosen one in yeah, the first place. See, there we go. We're building on the lore. I like it. I like it. Right. The other the other way you could go about it is through the body snatching element. Ooh. So it's been the, the spirits of these ancient witches, vampiric witches, whatever you want to call them. And every four years, they inhabit a new set of bodies and they perpetuate their youth that way. And they've avoided detection through that means rather than just being young forever. I kind of like that too. Hold that having them in their original form has on me is how, you know, then it would explain why they shrivel up and die when the tree does. But I also like the body snatching to avoid detection. So mm, I think there's a lot of potential there. The other question that I had was, I didn't recall any mention of a new watcher. Did I just miss that? Or did you feel like that was not an essential part of this story? Because it seems like, you know, as we understand from the series, at least going forward, we know that there are many watchers, you know, they're all over the world and whatever else. So it just felt like that that was missing from this. I ditched it because the movie lore says that Merrick is reborn and that he's reborn every time with the knowledge of, of what it's going to take to raise the new Slayer. And this is the first time that he's died. Well, no, I guess he would have died before, but, you know, he hasn't been reborn yet. So maybe in the third movie in this upcoming trilogy, Buffy has to babysit Merrick so that he can grow <laughs> up and <laughs> she trains him to train the next. 
There it is. The next uh, I will say that in the novelization, Merrick actually, when they start becoming friends, he explains, like, he basically starts giving more information about himself. And so what he says here is, it's what I was raised to do. Merrick sounded suddenly tired. There aren't many of us left, the Watchers. Watchers? There's a small village in Hampshire near Stonehenge. You know, and so basically it's interesting. He goes on to say, like, you know, people thought we were just a bunch of kooks living out the country so it's like in the novelization so in, in joss whedon's original concept they did have multiple watchers that trained each other and all this stuff so i guess we could take it whichever way we want a reborn baby merrick or actual uh you know a, a band of watchers that could send out a new one so where, where do you guys fall with that well the more i hear about what they changed the more i understand joss whedon's anger yeah. and annoyance that would be really frustrating yeah, it all worked out well, and didn't Merrick have like a British accent in like his first couple scenes? And then he completely drops it after that. Because <laughs> Sutherland's like, I'm only here for five weeks. I'm over it. Right. And and they were only talking like everything he references is back in England, back back in the old times. She calls him like a sconehead. Yeah. And it's like, if he is British, that makes sense. But if not... Where the heck did she pull that out of? He was pulling a Kevin Costner, I think, and sort of doing a British accent like he did in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, but then it fades away very quickly. Is she going to be able to take down the whole tree herself, or would multiple watchers be needed to assist? Just trying to think through how we can... Well, in the movie, Remedy are there that. multiple watchers, though? Isn't that what we're saying? Well, according to one? the way the movie presented it, yeah, Merrick just says, I, you know, I bored. And he says it... Also in the book, but then he says that his father trained him to be a watcher. So it's the kind of thing, it's like you are reborn with that purpose, but then you still get trained by other watchers. So it, it is a little convoluted in that way. Hmm. I mean, she technically was trained, so she doesn't probably need a watcher immediately. It just, it throws an interesting kink into the story if a watcher gets involved. But if we feel like there's already enough going on, because like I say, it was a pretty streamlined plot there maybe it is unnecessary or it, it's an ongoing joke that runs throughout and then you meet the watcher at the end potentially so here's here's kind of how i can remedy that we have one of the professors at the school reveal himself to be a watcher or the dean i mean just something just out of the blue shows up at the right time to assist well and it's something that we didn't use to good effect himself in the series because when buffy dies in the first mm -hmm. season then Kendra is activated and she has her own watcher and then when they're not quite satisfied with Giles's performance for whatever reason they send right. Wesley out who then went on to go into the Angel series so having the watcher be more of a product of like a community with the council like they did in the series does allow you to introduce more characters at convenient times. Yeah, and I kind of like the idea, though, that, yeah, maybe the Watcher, because we already had, like, this, you know, mentor figure of the first one, like you're saying, Jeremy, like, maybe he does work at the school, and whether he's a professor, or what if he works with Pike, but they're kind of like, he feeds information, but you know, he doesn't make himself known, and it's kind of like a testing phase for the Slayer. Can they operate on their own, but he's there to help the process along, and then, like I say, like, at the end that he reveals himself and it's like ah you did well so like, like that type of thing but it's like some like goofy guy that they did not expect like you know the bobcat gold only he's a mechanic who's yeah. like pestering 
Pike while he's working with them, and then it turns out he's been British the whole time. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I'd love to see Bobcat Goldthwait do a British accent. It'd be fantastic. Oh, that would be horrifying, and I'm here uh, for it. Yeah, the, the one question I have is, just as far as casting goes for, like, the evil sorority heads, I don't know what they're called in a sorority, who are the, the head sisters, but can you guys think of anybody in particular that you would really enjoy seeing play those roles that you feel like, you know, have the good either snobby girl or just, like, really, you know... Uh, intense nature to them. Are we retro casting this back in the nineties? What do you or say, today? Kristen? Is it a period uh, piece? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, let's let's go nineties. So this is ninety four, ninety five, maybe somewhere in there. What I mean, was Ken and Dirty up to those days? Well, that's what I'm saying, because I, I was trying to think. I think she left uh, Nano 210 after, like, three or four seasons, you know? So, like, she could totally be available. There's, you know, your connection, Luke Perry and Shannon Doherty in one film. Because she does definitely have that, that evil <laughs> nature to her. She just comes off very, I don't know, like, even though, like, they sometimes tried to play her as a good girl in other series she was on, it was always like, no, she She's got that little face where you just don't trust her. Her true colors definitely came out yes. in Heather's, so she would set the tone. Um, let's see, who else was, I mean, what's Winona Ryder up to? <laughs> just reunite the Heather's cast. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, it's like, hey, you guys If we're not are, doing Lost Boys, we'll are... do Heather's. I like it. I like it. <laughs> Jennifer Grey, too nice. Ooh. Or... She's the sister in Ferris Bueller, right? She could get so that So she definitely time. has that, yeah. that kind of attitude, so I think that works well. Pre-nose job, Jennifer Gray. Uh, Good. Right. Yeah, from Ferris Bueller, right? What was her oh. name? Oh, Mia Sarah. I mean, she could swing that. She was in um, Legend. She seemed like a sorority girl in Legend to you because she was so snotty about <laughs> the touching the unicorns. <laughs> that was just a crap <laughs> move. I'm still not over that one. She will forever be on my naughty list for that. That was not okay. No, but she pulled off that black dress. Oh, you're right. Okay, so when she's with... Darkness. Right, yeah. So, okay. So we got Mia Sarah. We got Winona Ryder. We got Shannon Doherty and Jennifer Grey as this evil cabal of the sorority. That's that's a pretty good light up there. I do not think Christy Swanson is up to face that. I think they would uh, end up winning. <laughs> that's the point, though. You're supposed to think she's out, you know. Otherwise, it's like, oh, she's got these. Yeah, and I mean, and that brings up kind of the final question then with Buffy, with Christy Swanson. Does she have an arc overall in this? You know, we know Pike's concerned, but is she going to fall back into, like, wanting to escape being a slayer and just be a party girl again? Or what do you think is her arc? Because technically this is supposed to be her movie. <laughs> I think there's got to be... First, some big bonding between her and her roommate, because otherwise she wouldn't have any reason to suspect the girl didn't just get, go home. So when her roommate goes missing, they need to have, like, partied together, you know, hung out together, been girls together. Plus, you know, I think that one of the overarching themes of the entire series is how lonely it is to be the Slayer and how, you know, Slayers need friends too, because at the end of the day, she's just a girl who happens to have a crazy night job. 
So there would have to be something really appealing about being the sorority or else I think she would just nope it out entirely. So yeah, she's grown and matured from being nothing but a ditzy shopper, but she still wants to have some kind of life outside of just killing things. And I think that kind of getting caught up in the college life at first might be part of that. Oh, and I think there does have to be a joke speaking of that, because it could be, it could lead to that. But, you know, since they are so involved with a tree, the sorority needs to be very involved, uh, you know, as environmentalists. And that's kind of the underlying joke. And then by the end, we're like, oh, I get it. Which would tie in nicely to the last dance theme where they're like, the earth and shouldn't we care about like the environment and then then it could be like we care about like the environment and just kind of continue that very nice very nice jeremy jeff anything else you wanted to throw into the mix here can we give uh sarah michelle uh, a cameo of some sort <laughs> she could play the roommate there you go that's a little more than a cameo see i, I don't know i feel like just just for the Buffy fans, just, I mean, now granted, we are doing re- this retro, I Sarah guess. Michelle Geller was still on Swan's Crossing or something at this point. <laughs> right. <laughs> if anyone remembers that tween drama from back in the day. I mean, maybe, like, there's something at the end, like, they have, like, uh, a young Slayer comes into the mix, you know, maybe when the Watcher shows up, he's like, here is your Slayer sister. And then, now she has to train up this younger girl who's just a few years younger. I don't know. Well, but like we're saying, is this if this movie comes out, then maybe the entire trajectory of you know she never becomes a slayer because Joss is not so upset. Yeah, well, and I was trying to think then, you know, who is the female director that helms this and does it better than Fran did? I mean, because you know, you go to Amy Heckerling is the first thought. I don't know if that's too trite to just give her the awesome girl power movie. Well, she was kind of in fine form in in that time period with Clueless and all of that, so... I think you gotta go back to Joss Whedon. I know it's not a a female director, but, you know... We saw what happened when you didn't go with him the first time. So he took his money he got from writing, helping to write Toy Story, and then he was able to become the producer on the sequel? Exactly. (laughs) I'm gonna make it my one. And there's gonna be more pools of blood, darn it. There will be blood! All right. Well, we hope we haven't gotten your blood boiling with all our ideas, but we uh, certainly enjoy everyone joining us for this special Halloween episode. Kristen, thanks so much for coming back. I had a great time. I'm glad to talk about Buffy and the old day. And uh, in the meantime, we also want to let you guys know that if you want more Sequel Quest, you will have to listen to the Retro Network Halloween special, where we actually brought you for sequel ideas to existing horror franchises so if you want to find out what we had in mind totally check that out like for sure and until next time ooh ee ah oh ah ee oh ee ah We thank you for listening to this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to continue the fake movie fun on social media. Submit your ideas for future episodes to sequelquestpod at gmail.com or sqpod on Twitter. The films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.